Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be here with you on this snowy day that we have outside, drifting roads and all of those things. And I had a thought this morning. I know that we have a number of friends that decide that for the winter months they're going to head south. And uh, I just want to take a moment and think about each one of them. And I just want them to know that we're going to save one storm just for when they return. So they better be ready when they come back. But uh, if you're with us at home today or if you're with us down in one of the sunny states uh, in our great country, we're glad to have you with us online today. Uh, It's good to be worshiping together and to be together in Christ and be studying the scriptures together. A few weeks ago, we began a new series uh, in the book of Job, and this is our final week today, and we have a memory verse from this book this month, and we'll say it together. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, Job 19.25. We laid out a few Uh, Thoughts and outcomes that we're hopeful for as we go into this series together. Uh, Next week, we begin three sermons in the book of Psalm. But this is our third and final week in Job's narrative. Week one found us as an audience to a moment behind the scenes. If you remember, as we had gathered together, the curtains were pulled back to allow us to imaginatively consider an interaction between God and Satan regarding God's righteous and upright servant, Job. Satan accuses Job, and God then releases Satan to touch Job's family, his possessions, his health and well-being, but not his life. Then in week two, last week, we met Job's wonderfully considerate friends. Weren't they just great? Remember how Job refers to them as they incessantly question him, he lands on the conclusion, what a bunch of miserable comforters, right? Not the kind of friends we want in suffering. But they came to be with him. They came to bear witness to his suffering. And after seven days of suffering with him, they decided that enough was enough and it was time to put Job on trial. And in their numerous discourses last week, we discovered the error of their accusations and their misunderstandings, both related to Job's righteousness and God's character. And this week, we attend to a very sensitive matter, hard matter. All of these weeks have had a bit of difficulty built within them. There are many paradoxes related to the righteous who suffer. As we conclude Job's narrative this week, we seek to nibble on the question of how we might rightly relate to God within our suffering. Sometimes pain and hurt overwhelm us. It seems that there is no way back, no way out, no end in sight, and battered, weakened, faint-hearted, we must continue to find the strength to go through. And in the depths of our pain, And struggle when we are living in the valley as the waters rise and the storms rage. There are questions 
we have for God. Sometimes, perhaps even, as Job, our own accusations, doubts, difficult deliberations with God. Job 38 to 42 reminds us that God is big enough. He is able to receive and to answer us from the belly of the deep down things that we experience in this life. As we watch how God answers Job, we also want to consider how God answers the deepest cries and the deepest groanings that exist within our own suffering. When contention and accusation begin to simmer in our hearts as we sit in our own long and pain-filled seasons of turmoil and discomfort, what is God's response to us? And how does His response help us to make sense of our own or others' pain and suffering? This is a very sensitive and weighty matter. It is one that I suspect we will not be able to fully satisfy or answer today. And yet it is good and right to accompany the text and look for bright hope and divine words that can help carry us through. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can take them now and turn them to Job chapter 38. We certainly need God's help today to take on this heavyweight task. And so we're going to pray and we're going to ask for His wisdom to lead and guide us before we step into His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Your name is Emmanuel, Creator and Sustainer. Your kingdom come, starting right here with Your church, and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread of life. Fill us with your word, which can carry and satisfy us. Forgive us, Father, when we've accused you or doubted your awareness of or attentiveness to us in our deepest waters. And forgive those who have intentionally or actively sinned against us in a way that has directly contributed to our pain and suffering. Lead us not into the temptation of contending against you when life is hard and we can't make sense of our circumstances and deliver us from the evil of pride, impatience, and unbelief in our grief. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Job chapter 38. Today we're going to begin by reading verses one through 11, Job 38, 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? 
Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. As Job's friends had questioned him, Job had disclosed that his heart was beginning to grow faint. It was wearied by both the adversity he was facing and the trial that his miserable comforters had added to his afflictions. Job wondered, is God aware of what's happening to me? Is he attentive to it? He's raised several questions directed at God's awareness and attentiveness to his pain. Job's accusations were related to God's sovereignty, God's knowledge, God's presence. And God is fully aware, not only of what Job is saying and has said, but also of all that is occurring within Job's utterly fatigued and weary Heart. Job has asked for this opportunity, as we see on the screen. He's wondered out loud and in his heart about whether God was present or paying attention to his despair. And now, here in chapter 38, God is speaking directly to Job. God's answer is presented as a theophany, which means it's an appearance of God. He's speaking from a whirlwind, which is fitting for the season of life that Job is experiencing. This would not be the last time that God would speak from such a wind. Ezekiel, Nahum, Zechariah also describe God as appearing and speaking from a whirlwind. Here I am, Job. Are you prepared to hear. Over the years, I fear I've been guilty of falling into the trap of reading a certain tone into these texts, one that I now believe was and probably is incongruent with God's character. Many of us were raised with the translation of these verses, which has lost context as our language has shifted and changed. How many of you were raised with the phrase, Gird up your loins! Right? Did anybody have any idea what that meant? I didn't. I just remember reading it and thinking, well, that's pretty cool. I should say that to somebody sometime. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Our modern translations give us a little bit more insight into the context of the meaning of those words. As we read it today, dress for action like a man. When a person girded up their loins or dressed for action, they were preparing for work that was both very difficult but also very rewarding and meaningful. The intent behind this phrase is for Job to prepare himself for a hard but meaningful exchange with the Almighty. I fear in the past I've read this as God bad-dogging or shaming Job in his grief. That's not what God does here. God knows the spirit 
and the weight of Job's questions and accusations, Job is towing dangerously close and perhaps has even crossed the boundaries of doing the same thing to God that his friends had done to him. Would Job, within his suffering, place God on the witness stand? Friends, do we sometimes, in our own suffering, place God on the witness stand? Many of us today, watching online or in the building, if we're honest with ourselves, would say we have. We do. God is ready and willing to respond. And in his response, he is going to remind Job and remind us that he is aware of and attentive to our pain. Church, the business of human grief and suffering is a serious matter. It's not something to be dismissed, denied, covered over, It's not something that we're to turn away from, turn a blind eye to, ignore, or try to belittle. Human grief and suffering demands a steadfast and patient response, both. And this is exactly the response that God is giving in these chapters. Satan has had effect. Sin and death have had effect. They have taken serious tolls on Job's life. And God has not been aloof or unaware. In some ways then, though God's response may be hard, even unsettling for Job, it is deeply meaningful and hopeful for him as it is for us to be reminded that God has been paying attention and He remains with us. God's response comforts because in it He rehearses with Job and us that we are not alone. He has not forsaken us. He has not abandoned us in the deepest dark things of life. God's response might, we might say, even mirrors the nature of suffering. Both Job's suffering and our own. Suffering is hard and meaningful. For the follower of Jesus, suffering is altogether unraveling and purposeful. Hard and good. There's a paradox. God will use questions to remind Job and build Job's awareness to God's attunement of or with Job's suffering. In chapters 38 to 42, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, you like to make notes, God is going to ask Job nearly 80 rhetorical questions. Almost 80. In these questions, God will cover a myriad of truth related to his presence, his power, his purpose, and his intentional design of everything within his creation. Friends, there is nothing that exists by accident. Take a look at chapter 39. Flip over verses 19 and 25 for an example. 
Here, God's going to call upon the testimony of the horse and the hawk. I'm going to read this portion of text from the message this morning. It's a beautiful translation of it. So if you don't have that translation on your device, you can just listen. This is Job 39, starting in verse 19. Are you the one who gave his horse prowess and adorned him in a shimmering mane? Did you create him to prance proudly and strike terror with his royal snorts? I love that. Royal snorts. I think one of my children might need that nickname. (laughs) He paws the ground fiercely, eager and spirited, then charges into the fray. He laughs at danger, fearless, doesn't shy away from the sword. The banging and clanging of quiver and lance don't faze him. He quivers with excitement and at a trumpet blast, races off at a gallop. At the sound of the trumpet, he neighs mightily, smelling the excitement of battle from a long way off, catching the rolling thunder of the war cries. That's the horse. Wow. Was it through your know-how that the hawk learned to fly? Soaring effortlessly on thermal updrafts? Did you command the eagle's flight and teach her to build her nest in the heights? Perfectly at home, on the high cliff face, invulnerable on pinnacle and crag. From her perch she searches for prey, spies it at a great distance. Her young gorge themselves on carrion. Wherever there's roadkill, you'll see her circling. Everything with purpose. Everything with great detail. Everything with intentional design. No accidents. Everything created just as God intended for it to function. And as we turn over to chapter 40, Job has little to offer. There's little he can say when he's confronted with God's clear awareness of and attentiveness to his creation. Look at verses 1 to 5 of Job chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I laid my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job concludes in this first response to God that as just one small part of God's creation, he does not have all the insight or information that God has. In his response, he shows us humility. He commits himself to remaining silent. We've heard a response like this before, have we not? Some of us know these words. We're familiar with them from the book of Ecclesiastes. You are God in heaven, and here I am on earth, so I'll let my words be few. Right? Job has listened. He's been reminded that there is little that he knows, little that he controls, understands, orders, or operates. And it is comforting to know that the God who was so present and so intentional in his creation 
is the same God who is aware of and attentive to Job, even as he suffers. And though Job is silent, God still knows. Friends, we cannot hide our hurt from God. We cannot hide our pain, our suffering, or our grief from God. He knows. He sees. Job is silent, but God knows there's still questions. Look then at chapter 40, verses 6 to 14. The Lord's going to answer Job again. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Get ready for a difficult task like a man. I will question you and you will inform me. Would you indeed annul my justice? Would you declare me guilty so that you might be right? Do you have an arm as powerful as God's and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself then with majesty and excellency. And clothe yourself with glory and honor. Scatter abroad the abundance of your anger. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and abase him. Crush the wicked on the spot. Hide them in the dust together. Imprison them in the grave. Then I myself will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This is the second part of God's response to Job. And in it, God is planting Job on the steady rock of his perfect power and justice. Yes, God is perfectly righteous and just. Yes, God rules over the beasts of the land and the water, even those beasts who appear to be the most wild and the most untamable. And here's where I lose everyone who's curious, right? Whenever I was growing up in church and young and the pastor was preaching through Job and he got to Bohemoth and Leviathan, that was the end of the sermon for me. So I'd ask you today to maybe read these on your own this week because they are really fun and really exciting, but I suspect that many of you will begin to read them right now. And that's okay. In chapter 40, verses 15 to 24, the behemoth represents the most powerful and untamable animal existing on the land. Then, in all of chapter 41, a full chapter of God's response set aside for Leviathan, the most powerful and untamable creature of the waters. God rules over both. These are the creatures of God's creation that are the most terrifying and uncontrollable to all of humanity. No one in humanity could fathom trying to control Bohemoth or Leviathan. These animals would have had little fear of humans. They would have demanded humility and respect when in their presence. And to be present with them without humility and respect would mean certain harm or even death. Did you ever see a powerful, powerful beast in the wild? Unexpected? I don't mean like at the zoo. 
I don't mean like on a safari. I mean like you came around a corner and there's bear. Do you remember what that provoked within you in that moment? The awe and the wonder? I remember. We were in the middle of a field riding a four-wheeler and all of a sudden I saw what I thought was a German shepherd run across the field. It was not a German shepherd about 50 yards in front of us. I knew it wasn't a German shepherd when it stood up on its hind legs because German shepherds don't do that. It was a bear in the wild. I was on a hike with the family. We were in New York in the Catskill Mountains and I was hiking along a trail and I was out in front. I had gone for a run and I said, when I get done with the run, I'll turn around and hike back to you and we'll meet up. And as I was hiking back towards them to meet up, I looked to my left and there in the thicket there was a downed tree and crawling up on the downed tree, a giant black bear. And my family was coming this way and I was going that way. I was like, wait, bear. But you know, when you're around beasts like that in the wild, maybe some of you have been whale watching out in the boat and you've seen this gigantic, we can't even put it into words. We see pictures of it. It makes no sense until we feel its presence. And we know that it's beyond anything we could control. Not God. God is completely able to tame the things that we think on this earth are the most untamable and uncontrollable. And this is doing something to Job as he sits and he listens and he's reminded of God's presence and God's work through these beasts and these animals and God's righteousness and his control and his ability to rule sovereignly over his creation, Job is convinced. He's ready. He's ready to confess. We're going to see it. Not only is he going to confess, but he's going to repent and turn from his accusations, turn from his doubt, turn from his faithlessness and his hopeless despairing. Job's response at the beginning of chapter 42 is an example for all of us of how we might turn to God in our suffering to confess where we have accused or doubted or lacked belief, turning away from it instead to embrace God who rules and reigns justly and righteously over our lives. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 42 is Job's confession and repentance. Take a look. Job answered God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You ask, who is this? Muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes. I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. Verse 5, I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise I'll never again live on the crust of hearsay, on the crumbs of rumors. 
You see, once there was a time where Job had only heard of this God. This God was out there. He had only heard of him. Now he has seen. His proclamation echoed throughout the chapters of the New Testament. I once was blind, but now I see. It's a confession. It's a reaffirmation of his faith. God, I trust you. Friends, this is the place where we find rest in our suffering. Many of us who share this space today have experienced suffering, trauma in our lives. Many of us, like Job, have sought answers to questions far beyond our understandings. We have at times second-guessed God. We've waded into waters that are far too violent and tumultuous for us to control. Perhaps, for some of us listening online or in this room, perhaps there was a season or is a season, maybe we're there right now, where we've even abandoned or grown angry with God, biting on the rumors that persist. Rumors that chant and chime that a loving God would never allow hard things to happen to His good people. I said this is a weighty matter. It's a weighty matter. Human suffering could demand three years of a sermon series and we probably still couldn't touch the depths of all involved. Today could be the day that we have heard, but now we see that though suffering is painful, even unbearable at times, there is no suffering without meaning and purpose. When our load is heavy and life is wholly uncomfortable and the fangs of suffering have sunk their teeth into our hope, the gospel presents us with one whom we can cling to. We have a Messiah who suffered too. And friends, his suffering was for us. He suffered in our place. He took what we deserved and in his suffering, he secured for us the greatest treasure that any of us could ever imagine. Life with God as a beloved child of God for eternity. The faithfulness of Jesus in his sufferings becomes the pattern for us to follow in our own suffering. Jesus' suffering was productive. It was meaningful. His patterns, his attitudes, his behaviors in hard times serve as a compass or a roadmap for us, guiding the patterns and the attitudes and the behaviors that we might have in our own difficult spaces. In Jesus, not only have we heard of God's greater purpose, we've 
heard that good news. And not only have we heard of that greater meaning behind suffering, but now in the person of Jesus, the real historical person who lived a real life here on earth and died a real death here on earth and was buried in a real tomb here on earth and was resurrected again into a real body here on earth, that Jesus we can look upon and know that our Savior suffered too. There's great meaning and there's great purpose in suffering. The living God, the living God, that God that we just read about in chapters 38 to 42, that God didn't keep himself from life's brokenness and pain. Instead, he embraced it. He carried it. He crucified it. He buried it. He raised it to a new life with a greater purpose and meaning than we could ever understand or imagine here on earth. Through the painful ashes of his death, Jesus secured for his fellow sufferers meaning and purpose that lasts for eternity. In salvation, friends, we have life with God. Life with God. As we have rehearsed each week, our sufferings draw us closer to God. When we walk through the deep valleys of hard times, we come to a deeper knowledge and understanding of that which Jesus endured for us. Paul talked about this reality in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, my aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to be like him in death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so we step into the final seven verses of Job's narrative. Seven verses that highlight that suffering is both meaningful and purposeful. But a paradox again. As one scholar suggests, this is not a happy ending. We dare not say, and they lived happily ever after. Though Job has experienced abundant blessing, the painful loss of his first children will remain with him throughout his long remaining years. The ending of Job's story does not resolve the grief or loss of his past. It doesn't make them easier for Job to endure. It doesn't dismiss the terror and the trauma of what he had experienced. The ending of Job reminds us of the many paradoxes involved with suffering faithfully in this hard, broken, and difficult world that we inhabit. When the righteous suffer, it is not happy. It is also very hard for us to consider sometimes and understand it as good. But it is purposeful. It is meaningful. And it can be productive. And perhaps, perhaps, if I might gently suggest, as we keep those realities in mind, we might come to the place in our valley where we can see how God has woven together the hard and the good to produce or bring forth something of beauty that can be used to help another one who is hurting to heal.
That's Christian community, friends. He's with us. God is with us through the pain and the fog of loss. God does not leave us to navigate it alone. He lifts us from the ash heap and continues to lay before us as we faithfully continue to move forward his precious, good, and gracious gifts. That's what God does. Verses 10 to 17, the conclusion of Job's narrative. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that God had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And I wondered as I read that this week, where were those friends earlier? And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job, verse 12, more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Kezia and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. That's a long time. And Job died an old man and full of days. Full of days. Old faithful, hard. There's so much of Job's narrative that presents us with the realities of life that so often in every season we find mingled together things that are tremendously hard and things that are tremendously good. And with all of those things, a precious truth that we can cling to is that God is faithful as he is with us.